the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business Week here on Hancock, podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking at the new residential zoned land tax, which is designed to prevent land hoarding by developers and due to come into force next year. I'll shortly be joined on the line by developer Michael O'Flynn, who's had 12 properties in Cork listed for the new tax. He'll tell me why he believes the concept is good, but the process is flawed. And he'll explain how any tax imposed by the government will simply be passed on to buyers. In the second half of the show, I'll be joined by Kevin O'Sullivan of the Irish Times and John Power, the head of Engineers Ireland, to discuss a new report by Engineers Ireland on our future energy mix. But first to property and the new residential zoned land tax, which was put into legal effect in the Finance Act of 2021, although it won't be collected until next year. It proposes to charge an annual tax of 3% on the value of zoned and service land that isn't being developed. The tax is essentially to encourage developers and landowners to build homes on suitable sites in a timely fashion and not to hoard land. Each local authority was charged with drawing up maps deciding which land should fall under the tax and this has created controversy with landowners and developers. In Cork, developer Michael O'Flynn has 12 sites listed for the new tax, all of which he plans to appeal. He joined me on the podcast to explain why he believes the concept of the tax is good, but the implementation is flawed. I began by asking Michael what beef he has with the new tax. Okay, could I start by saying that I'm in favour of the concept of the, of the tax. I think when initially contemplated, this tax is meant to avoid land hoarding and is meant to bring land to the market that can residential development can take place on. I have no difficulty with that. Land is a key raw material. So I just want to make it clear that I'm not, uh, to use your own words, I don't have a beef with the tax. I have a beef with how this tax is being applied. It hasn't been thought through. And the last thing we need in our industry at this moment in time, with with a key component being raw material, that there is confusion, it doesn't work, I would use the word, it's conceptually good, but the application is dysfunctional, illogical, whatever word you want to use. That's my beef, to use your word. But also, you mentioned about all these sites I have. A lot of these sites should never have been put on a list for anything because they're not capable of ever having planning. So the mapping process was a a broad uh, um, scope of land that might appear in a developer's ownership but might be actually open space land from a previous development and wouldn't wouldn't, um, be capable of ever getting planning because it's designated as open space. So straight away, Kiran, we're into problems here that I would say there are unintended consequences because this hasn't been properly thought through. Okay, Michael, I suppose this is a new tax. It was then thrown into the lap of the county councils to identify the land uh, where the tax should apply. I don't think they asked for this this particular duty, but anyway, it was given to them. 
Um, so they had to then uh, look at their maps and, as you say, some land, I, I suppose that was always going to happen, wasn't it? It was never going to be black and white. There was always going to be some subjectivity to it. And um, they were probably going to uh, identify some lands um, that maybe shouldn't have been identified. But that's been sorted now. They've, they've taken those uh, lands out. But of the ones, the 12 that continue to be listed, are they right to continue to list those. Presumably they are. Presumably they're operating within the, the confines of the legislation. Well, first of all, you, you've made a very quick conclusion there as to uh, the unintended consequences uh, as to what happened. But it, that shouldn't have happened because we, we, all have, we all have our work to do as local authorities and development companies have. So the system of identifying should have been clearer and certainly shouldn't apply to estates built many years ago where open space land. So I, I don't understand. It, it shows... It shows um, a sloppiness around the administration and the implementation of this, what I would consider, important tax if it's going to achieve what it's set out to achieve. So, to get on to the second part of your question, um, like it's hard to understand how something in planning, be it pre-planning, planning application, maybe in, in train, then you get onto a planning being refused and appealed by the developer, a judicial review by a developer because of issues. All of those means that the tax applies. Now, how can you have a situation where I saw recently in the LDA report in March 23 that they were saying it takes up to six years um, for land to, to go from undeveloped to housing. So we're talking about a situation here where the actual tax would apply for a number of those years. That actually means that whilst we are trying hard to get planning, get on site, we're actually paying a tax. So the purchaser, and it's important to understand this, it's not the developer, it's the purchaser will ultimately pay the tax because all our costs are added on to the, to the cost of building a house. So like, this was never the intention. I mean, the tax here was was meant to bring forward land that people might be sitting on. Our hoarding is something that the industry doesn't do, even though sometimes it's a very populist political thing to say, oh, this will stop all, all, all the hoarders. And on top of all of that, I see lots of issues going to come out of this tax in terms of how can you be forced to do something that's not viable? If you are in a situation that you're possible planning outcome isn't viable, well, then you can't be forced to develop something that loses money. Uh, any company structure can't do that. But you're still going to have to pay the tax. So I would say to you that this is a compulsory purchase by different means. And I think that's going to throw up all sorts of legal issues in due course. And furthermore, I know you probably haven't asked this question, but like take farmers who are actively farming land why should they have to pay zoning tax if they're using the land for a very important purpose in this country? And I wouldn't just be talking about, um, you know, that's one issue. Other issue, which is extraordinary, is not owned by development companies. You have a lot of land that has right-of-way issues that might have right-of-way for, for existing agricultural use, but they wouldn't have right-of-way for res residential purposes. So you have all these issues that I don't think have been thought out at all. 
Michael, you said conceptually you thought it was a good idea. So if you think it's a good idea, how, in your opinion, how would you make it work? Well, it, it, it's a good idea in that it's, if it sets out to bring land to the market that isn't otherwise um, being utilised. And I'm talking about land that's not in active farmland or not in active use or indeed not strategically important to the institution that might own it. And, you know, I, I know of universities who are very concerned because some of their land is being, is being designated. That's not the intention. So there's a broad brush approach being taken. Oh, that land there, this land here, that land over there. Let's put it all in and put it up to the owners. That's not the way to introduce something as important as this. The reason I think conceptually it's good is I'm aware of a lot of land, Kieran, that's sat there for a number of years that could have brought, been brought forward. That's not a bad idea. Or indeed institutional land that will never be used for institutional purposes. That's, that's a good idea. You'd question why that land was ever zoned, but zoning isn't an exact science and some people think it is. But then it also puts pressure on the zoning if there's a tax going to be paid. I think that's a good idea because you shouldn't be zoning land if it has infrastructural issues, if it has no prospect of the infrastructure being resolved. So I think that puts pressure on local authorities to do their business in a more forensic manner in terms of if we zone that land, is it capable of being serviced? If it is, well, let's zone it. That puts pressure on the owner then to deal with it. But we, we have a situation here at the moment that there's no regard taken to the fact that it may have um, infrastructural deficits, or as I said already, right-of-way or access difficulties. Uh, like, how does that... That doesn't help anything. So, yes, conceptually it's good, but the way they're going about it, it takes away the good completely. It's just one of those nice things to be able to say politically, we have the zoning tax now, all our problems are going to go away as regards housing supply. This is not going to help in any way to um, alleviate housing supply. In fact, I think it's it's counterproductive because of the work involved for local authorities. And what about Bob Planola? They're the most overstretched institution probably in the state. And we're not going to give them all this extra work to adjudicate. And you refer to lands that I have that weren't deemed inapplicable. And they are all land that either are under appeal, several of them are in Borplanola, under judicial review, or indeed land that is outside my control in terms of making an application, or indeed then you have land that we are already developing on. And are we meant to pay tax on the other portion of the land, even though different phases, which adds to the price of those in um, product. It's hard to understand how something that's worth having in place isn't taught out to the extent that it would work in practice. So I'm saying, in theory, good plan. In practice, a hopeless plan, not taught out, needs to be taken back in by the minister and to make it workable for all concerned. Michael, you're on the government's commission for housing. Have you not made these points to the commission and to the minister? I presume you have a direct line to the minister. Well, in fairness, I am on the housing commission and that's wearing the, that cap. I, I um, Obviously, everything we discuss is, is confidential and is very much designed towards um, our report that will come out. And 
all aspects of housing supply and uh, impacts on housing, different types of housing, is being considered. But I wouldn't be in a position to to make any comment wearing my commission cap. And th- this podcast and any um, interviews I do um, whilst under commission are, are speaking from a personal point of view only. Yeah, but you are on the commission. So, and this is a, a crucial a crucial matter in terms of the delivery of housing. It's certainly a, a, a key plank in the government's plan to deliver more housing into the market. It's obviously a big issue for developers like yourself. So presumably, you know, you have a platform uh, where you can make your views known on this. And uh, I would imagine you have a you have a direct line to the minister, regardless of the commission. Um, if he's if you've been appointed to this commission, presumably the door is open to hear your views on on matters such as this. I, I can assure you uh, my voice is is um is heard in the Commission. I'm making many, many points on aspects of housing supply and a zoning tax that could impact on it wouldn't be excluded. But uh, like, because you're on the Commission, I, I, I'm, the Commission is independent of government and independent of the Minister. So our, our work is independent and um, I'm not quite sure what you mean by direct line to the minister. Um, it's a small country. Uh, everyone knows everyone, but at the same time, well, I'm very respectful of, of my position on the commission and what's expected of me. And uh, I, have a, I have a number of, of commission colleagues who who, who would be very um, focused on some of the issues that uh, I am focused on. Michael, in the report the other day, you said that the, the tax uh, that could apply annually to the 12 sites that you're now, that are on the list, that you have that are on the list and that you're now going to have to appeal to onboard Planola around, that tax, annual tax, could run to more than 2 million quid a year. And if it's applied and you get to develop the land, that's that's going to be passed on to to the house purchasers. Yeah, look, it's it's quite extraordinary that we're now into an appeal situation to onboard Planola. And see, the problem we have here, and you made this point earlier in this podcast yourself, the local authorities were mandated to do a job and they felt they had to do the job, albeit they are now um, deeming a lot of the, their initial work as inapplicable, to use the word I think that I saw in some of their letters. But the department, you know, or the board plan all will feel, well, we have to do what we've been mandated to do. So this is probably something that the legislators didn't fully um, um, assess and fully understand what they were trying to do. And if we're going to end up paying the kind of tax that you've just described, that means our the base cost of our new houses is going to go up. And like, Karan, we've had discussions many times over the years. Like, we have a serious base cost situation in this country for new housing. One example, we pay a VAT at 13.5%. Our, our neighbours in North of Ireland, and there's plenty interaction at this moment in time between North and South, they pay zero VAT. The UK, where I have an active involvement in development, zero tax. They have a lot more liberal approach in the UK, and I have personal experience of this towards towards development levies. They, they're actually concerned about viability. They're concerned about, do, does it work? We have an extraordinary situation in this country where people think if they had a national development Construction company, everything would be cheaper. Everything would be a lot more expensive. The costs that are driving housing are, are not developers' profits 
who, which are indeed um, almost too low at this point from a funding point of view. So we have serious issues as regards the cost base. And here we are bringing in a tax that has an unintended consequence that will cost the house purchaser we're trying to facilitate more than, than it should because this was never the case before and it was meant to do something different to what it's actually doing. It was meant to make more land available, which is why conceptually I like the idea. But to make more land available, you need to do your business right. You need to do your homework right. And conceptually it's good, but the way it's being applied is just quite incredible. And it's hard to believe that we're having this discussion at this point because I have read or listened to very little about this tax for some reason it's only now that people are getting the responses back that your site and planning is subject is subject to to the tax supplies. The tax supplies, as I said, pre-planning, pending planning, refused by the local authority and appealed by the developer. Tax you still you pay tax. It refused by Umbor Pinala and Jad by the developer. You pay tax. I mean, like you're granted planning and you're trying to figure out the. The compliance issues, that could take an awful long time with a local authority these days. The tax supplies, while you're mobilising on site, the tax supplies. That's nonsensical, Kieran. in anybody's eyes when people are, are doing their business properly. And this, this is another imposition on our industry that, that will have consequences and is having consequences at this moment in time. Like, am I supposed to go and buy land in advance? Pipeline is the, is the great word. If I'm paying tax on the pipeline, like how can we have consistent outturn of units or housing unless we have a pipeline? And now if we get a pipeline, we're going to have to pay tax on the pipeline. Like this is this is crazy. And someone needs to call it out for what it is. And there needs to be a, a, a debate and a discussion around how can we make it um, work in the way that it was intended. At this moment in time, it will not work. I'm going to be blunt and say that it's just bizarre that we are even having this discussion but it's good that we're having it because maybe some sort of a, an educated discussion might start with the people who are in a position to do something about it. By the way, what is the profit margin nowadays for uh, developers? The profit margin the funders recommend for funding is 15%. It's nowhere near that. It's, it's, it's not even in double digits which if you were to apply land values, and it's hard to explain that, um, because land values should affect the profit margin, should have what we call residual appraisal. If you were to apply land values, you'd be well, you'd be in single figures. And you mentioned costs and how costs are, are uh, sort of spiraling out of control at the moment, and you've called for zero VAT uh, rate, which the government, it's a plea that's been made for a number of years and, and the government clearly hasn't listened. But in terms of costs, one of the key costs uh, for any developer is land costs, isn't it? Land acquisition costs. Yes. And some yes. of the costs, uh, Michael, have been pretty saucy. Some of the prices paid for land in Ireland have been pretty saucy. So are developers not partly to blame for the high costs that currently exist in the construction sector? It's a very good question. And it's a very difficult question to answer because certain structures took a view and bought a lot of land at a certain period of time. Now we have a situation where we have people buying land with no understanding as to 
what a residual value of that land is. In other words, what can you sell it to make the profit we just discussed and bring it all back and impact on the price of land? There are very few developers like me at the moment buying land because we don't want it at the price. And we certainly don't want it if we have to pay tax every year at a price that doesn't work. So, like, this is driving more people out of the market and making a bigger case for a state construction development company that won't have to answer for for costs or indeed won't have to make a profit. And I can tell you now, will cost this state an awful lot more and the taxpayers an awful lot more than a properly structured private supplied industry. But when you talk, when they talk about state construction companies or development companies, they don't talk about all the costs and they don't have to make a profit and they don't have to pay funding costs, but there's no such thing as free land. So you're using up resources that could be better used for health and education and and other means without throwing money away, which is what's going to happen. If we drive more and more people out of the private housing industry and let it become more and more reliant on the state. That is the outcome of structures like this tax and the existing price of land because of the scarcity and people. some people taking a view, but I think they are less and less, um, fortunately in one sense, but still some of the, the lack of supply and the lack of zoning and infrastructure matched up is such that we're, we're in a very, very challenging sector that's becoming more challenging. Michael, how many houses do you expect to complete this year? Some are close to 400 units. Okay. How would that compare with your normal run rate? <sighs> yeah, it, it, it's comparable to recent years, but it's it's a lot less than what we're capable of. So here you're talking to somebody whose st- structure is capable of an awful lot more than we're doing. But looking forward, I think we'll be producing less and possibly less rather than more because we have huge viability issues. And I, I think um, if, if you know, you've made that comment, almost you dismissed that and that we've tried for years, it's going nowhere. Well, if that's the case, unless the state ramps up purchasing and, you know, to be fair, there are a number of schemes there which are really only supplementing the, the taxes on the industry in... in um, the help to buy and first home scheme, which conceptually, of course, helped the situation. But uh, like I asked the question, uh, you know, where are we going? Why are lists growing? We're becoming more dependent, you know, and thankfully the LDA structure is there, which is a very important structure as a, as a, a giant venture with the private industry, not to be set up as a separate entity that just delivers at whatever cost. And of course, you have the approved housing bodies. So I'm all for more collaboration, but we have to deal with some of the fundamentals. You've identified land and a lot of the costs and regulations we can't and won't and shouldn't change. So you've got to look at what you can change and how can we make housing more affordable because there are people now on the housing list in my area in every area, that were my house purchasers 35 and 40 years ago. That is a very sad situation for an economy that's regarded as as booming and we can't even supply housing. And you can see the impact on rents and evictions. That's all back to one word, supply or 
Three words, lack of supply. Okay, I wasn't dismissing you, by the way, on the VAT. It's the government that has dismissed, uh, dismissed the uh, no, industry. No, 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 on, no but VAT, you were dismissing... You were dismissing the point that if we weren't listening to, and you're, you're right, we're dismissing that it's going nowhere. I think that's the point you were making because yeah. we've tried for so long, yeah. and you're right, it's going nowhere, but it should go somewhere. And um, it's all impacting on supply, and some of the, the good additions the government have brought in are, are masking some of the cost issues, and uh, a lot more needs to be done. And like when I hear people saying we've turned the corner, we haven't turned the corner, so let's, let's call it out as it is. Michael, of the 400 units, how many of those will be for first-time buyers? And what kind of, you know, typically what kind of price are we talking about? They'd be mainly first-time buyers. And, um, you know, in in Cork, you're talking in high 300s, 400s, um, of thousands. In Dublin, the greater Dublin area, you're talking about a bit more than that. And what impact, from what you're seeing on the ground, what impact is increasing interest rates having on demand for new housing? Yes, it is having an impact. I, I, I think um, the shared equity scheme is helping that. I think it's, it's, unfortunately, it's a fact of life. I don't think it's going to continue long term, but there's such a demand at the moment from people with the um, first home scheme and the, first, and the help to buy. They're helping people to get there. The answer to your question is it's having an impact, absolutely. It's just the pool of buyers is big enough for it to not to be felt as much as you normally would feel it. Right. And have you had any people sort of walk away from potential purchases because suddenly affordability has become an issue for them in terms uh, of their ma- Yes. Yes. Marginal people are, are, are losing out. And it's th- this is unfortunate. These are the people who, you know, shouldn't be losing out. Like, people... In the political world, lo- love to talk about, you know, wh- why is it housing is so expensive? There is no mystery to it. You know, I've in- encouraged an open book approach. I'd welcome an independent assessment approach before you start creating structures that will cost the Irish taxpayer an awful lot more in, in the future. Okay, Michael Flynn, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kira. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, Kevin O'Sullivan of the Irish Times and John Power of Engineers Ireland join me to discuss the country's energy supply needs. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Earlier this week, Engineers Ireland issued a report on Ireland's energy supply mix with a number of recommendations that included having a debate on the use of nuclear power. You'll hear from Engineers Ireland Chief John Power in a few moments, but I began by asking Kevin O'Sullivan to give me a rundown of the recommendations in the report. This is the latest report from uh, Engineers Ireland in terms of assessing electricity need over coming decades and blockages in the system in terms of decarbonising and uh, addressing also barriers to having a really strong grid in place that's very flexible in terms of taking on renewables that overcomes problems due to constraint and, and lack of inertia. That's it in summary. 
but there's some very interesting proposals in it. It, it highlights the, the issue of the north-south interconnector, which is long overdue and is much delayed, subject to a lot of legal challenges, unfortunately. And there's no clear vision yet on, on when that will come into operation. It's critically needed. In a sense, it's, it's a, a backbone of the electricity system. And uh, in the meantime, costs are escalating, which the, uh, Engineers Ireland highlights. Um, but it's also uh, contributing to a likelihood that with the lack of flexibility, the lack of an adequate grid, that electricity costs will be higher both for consumers and businesses in, in the years to come, which is uh, not a very welcome scenario. In addition, the assessment spells out the need to... Um, uh, but firstly, that we are still in an energy trilemma in the sense that we're we're trying to transition away from fossil fuels. We need energy security. We're still importing far too many uh, fossil fuels uh, at a great cost. And uh, at the same time, we're trying to increase sustainable energy. So that's a very difficult uh, balancing act. But uh, to uh, address the issues that that are that I've referred to, they're advocating a rapid scale up of green hydrogen, which is hydrogen generated from renewables. And the best way to do that in the future for Ireland is likely through offshore wind. Um, it's also suggesting that we need to strengthen the grid for a scenario where Ireland will generate more electricity than it needs, hopefully by the end of the decade into the early 2030s. So therefore, it will need to feed into an efficient supergrid and the report strongly endorses that, that approach. But there's some very interesting proposals on retrofitting of thermal generation. In other words, power that's generated using coal, coal oil and gas. So it's advocating a hybrid system. So if uh, you transition away from fossil fuels that it will be able to use green hydrogen, biomethane and biomass. So in effect, that will allow them switch to carbon neutral plants um, in the medium term. It also uh, supports the use of enhanced uh, LNG infrastructure and regasification units as an interim solution as we transition. Uh, so it does mean that we, we need natural gas infrastructure, which is politically problematic, especially for the Green Party. And it's also saying that we need to have a, an honest and frank conversation about using nuclear power. John Power of Engineers Ireland, can I just ask you where you stand on fossil fuels? The position essentially with fossil fuels is, is, is very simple. Um, we, we've witnessed over the last number of years the, the, the damage that fossil fuels have done to the atmosphere. And, and I think we need to face up to that fact um, in a realistic way, i.e., move away from fossil fuels as quickly as we possibly can without jeopardizing the security of supply, which is a significant challenge, but it can be certainly managed. So uh, I, I think it's Engineers Ireland's view, and I think it's probably everybody's view, that we need to get away from fossil fuels, maybe starting with the, the, the coal and the oil um, being the two, dirt, or the two of the three dirtier fossil fuels, and recognizing that um, we're going to require a backup on an ongoing basis, when, I, when, we, when I talk interim term here, I'm probably talking the next 30, 40, 50 years maybe. But we're going to require a backup to the renewables we'd like to have um, uh, 
that we can avail of indeed, given the the the, the, the natural positioning of this little island, uh, we've got a um, a wonderful um, coastline uh, that should certainly be able to be utilised much better for offshore wind. Um, now we're not going to carpet the Atlantic with offshore wind, and I think we need to be 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 be, be mindful of that. Um, and there are obstacles there. There are planning obstacles, and we need to get over those. And we need to do something about them fast. We talk about we talk for an awful long time about some of this stuff. But we tend to be very slow to actually make something happen. So Engineers Ireland view would be that we need to act and begin to act now uh, in relation to identifying um, where we want to be, let's say, in the, in the 2050 timescale, uh, recognise what needs to be done um, uh, in the meantime, get out, of, get out of the fossil fuels, have gas there as a backup uh, while we're developing the renewables and ultimately move towards a system whereby this little island um, could be as energy independent as possible. Uh, the possibility is there, the chance is there for us, but we need, to, we need to get moving on it, we need to act on it. There's a company called Barry Row. it's an Irish listed exploration company and it has an oil and gas uh, exploration license for a site off the south coast of Ireland near Cork. And that has previously been assessed for 300 million barrels of oil. So it's essentially sitting there waiting to be developed. They haven't yet got the proper licenses or authority from the government to go ahead with that. But they're hoping to get that very shortly. So I'm just wondering where you stand on that, because obviously that would give us uh, security of supply. It's right in our doorstep. Presumably it'd be cheaper than we could buy energy on the world market. And it would certainly fill the gap until a lot of these renewable resources come on stream. Well, I think that this is more of a personal view than an Engineers Ireland view, but I think that, that we, we need, we need to, to balance uh, any exploration we have um, within the context of where we want to get to ultimately. Um, quite clearly, we, we, we wish to get out of the use of oil, we wish to get out of the use of coal, and ultimately we wish to get out of the use of, 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 of gas as, of, as fossil fuels, because we've seen the danger, the, the damage they've done. Uh, so uh, uh, my own personal view would be um, that we need to be very careful about, about um, further exploration um, I'm not saying it should be banned entirely, but I, need, I think we would again need to have a very balanced discussion on that and where all that exploration and the potential benefit of that, that exploration could sit in the overall scheme of things. But I think we, I, I really do think that we, we, we can't get away from where we want to get to. Um, and, and we want to get to a, 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 a position of energy independence um, in a sustainable way with as clean as possible an environment and be seen to do, and this is Engineers Ireland's position, we need to be seen to do everything we can uh, in a sustainable, realistic way while ensuring continuity of supply in an affordable um, and accessible way to, for, for, for the customers of Ireland. John, in the report you mentioned having a national conversation essentially on the use of nuclear power, which would be somewhat controversial, I think, and I'm not sure the Green Party would necessarily be on board with that. Um, although it must be said, we're building an interconnector with France and uh, a lot of the French energy is produced uh, via nuclear, so we might be getting some of it indirectly anyway. But nevertheless, what do you think the chances of nuclear power coming on stream in Ireland are? It's very, it's very difficult, and I, I wouldn't dream of saying never, um, Kieran. But I, I would certainly say that we've got to start somewhere, we've, and we've got, we, we should certainly start with a discussion on the issue. I, I, Engineers Ireland's position on this is very clear. 
we need to just have a balanced, informed discussion on it. Um, and, and, you know, there are small modular reactors being, being under construction at the moment and they could possibly be on stream, um, you know, in, in, within the next seven or eight years. Um, there, you know, nuclear power is an awful, awful lot safer to the general population than, than, than the fossil fuels have, have been over the last number of years. So we must recognise the fact that, um, you know, we want, to, we want a sustainable supply of electricity in the country. We want a, um, a consistent, secure supply of electricity. Um, you know, nuclear fits into that overall equation. Um, at the moment, we can't even discuss it. Let's, for goodness sake, uh, have a, a balanced discussion on this. We do know certainly people are going to be um, nervous about it. People are going to be, be, be uh, concerned. Um, but, you know, very often a lot of people are concerned um, based on, on, on unfounded fears. Uh, what happened in, in, in Chernobyl um, happened in, a, in, a, in, in the old Soviet uh, system, the old Soviet regime, where, where um, adherence to standards and quality would certainly not have been any way, in any way acceptable here. So, you know, as I say, if we, if we can have a, a, an open, balanced discussion, I think it would, it would be a very good, solid step forward. And let, let, let the discussion lead to either the development or the not, not the development of nuclear. But the small modular reactors, they're coming in at sizes of about three and 400 megawatts, uh, would certainly be quite suitable for an island of this size. Kevin O'Sullivan, what do you think the political appetite is for nuclear power in this country? Interestingly, the Green Party haven't ruled it out, and Eamon Ryan in particular, but he always says no one has come with a case that makes it commercially viable for an island like Ireland, a small island. But I agree strongly with John that, that the modular option is coming onto the table and you can see uh, pilot plants being developed in Britain and elsewhere and clearly they are working in a different way. The huge costs associated with building a plant are not there and therefore that looks like coming into the picture in terms of an option but it's not going to be immediately available to Ireland. But it's kind of a space you have to watch and not rule it out completely. And I was intrigued to see recent research showing that there's options now in terms of using nuclear waste sustainably, in, for example, in, in generating district heat. So therefore, you know, that's the big issue ar around nuclear, that what do you do with the waste? So there are options there. So I think we need to keep an open mind on it. I think Europe is beginning to relook at nuclear and even the Greens within the European Parliament are, are looking at it. Uh, so it, that's an interesting shift. Uh, but unfortunately, our energy needs are such that we have to scale up on the renewables in the in the nearer term. And uh, I think that's the right way to go. That's the quicker timeline to getting the benefits from decarbonisation and they're considerable. Whereas just to return to the earlier discussion, if we... Uh, you know, expand oil and gas exploration. There is a grave risk of of of, of infrastructure lock in uh, for decades, and uh, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, uh, has highlighted that there is no need to go down that route. So I think that's pro broadly the global view at the moment. Uh, we need to just get on with the solutions that are there and get over the barriers to quick deliver delivery of key infrastructure. Yeah, we've had a lot of announcements, haven't we, around offshore wind uh, projects and a lot of um, potential financing uh, put in place and so on. But none of them, um, where, where are they at, actually, uh, Kevin? Where are these various projects at? And how likely is it uh, of them coming on stream soon? 
Well, the, the first phase involves seven projects and they're all fixed bottomed uh, turbines rather than floating uh, turbines. And they are largely concentrated in the Irish Sea and they are set to come on stream within the next few years, i.e. by 2030. So they are being accelerated. They've been fast tracked by the government in terms of planning, in terms of licensing and uh, in terms of auctioning, uh, in other words, whatever subsidy is going to apply. There is one additional wind farm off the Galway coast. Again, it's a fixed bottom one. Uh, so there's a lot in the, in the immediate pipeline. Then there's a whole series of of wind farms off the south coast and the Celtic Sea, a lot more off the west coast. Uh, so there's, there's, they're sort of queuing up to get the green light. And uh, it, it's quite uh, it's quite interesting to see the scale that's envisaged. Now there are policy issues that have to be resolved, and there was a, a, a sort of a an, un, an unanticipated policy shift by the government in recent times, whereby they said uh, they're they're going to move from a developer-led scenario to a plan-led uh, scenario where. Uh, wind farms will be located in in designated areas. Now that has thrown a certain amount of un, you know lack of certainty uh, into the into the conversation, and it's kind of spooked investors as well. So that that needs to be resolved because the one thing that developers need is certainty, and they're prepared to commit billions of euros uh, in the Irish scenario, particularly offshore. But the lack of uh, certainty over planning and the issues about policy need to be resolved very quickly. Mm, does it not make sense to have a plan-led one rather than a developer-led one? Have developers, uh, for example, in the housing market, uh, you know, we've had uh, huge issues there. I can agree with that position, but it, it, was, uh, it wasn't flagged and that really threw people. And uh, clearly there's a need for greater consultation with the industry. And I, and I agree with calls for a major task force having all the different stakeholders in the room so they can coordinate this. And there are issues around planning that need to be resolved uh, and there are issues around port development that need to be resolved very quickly if we want to get the, the scale of return from offshore that's clearly there. What happens when the wind doesn't blow, Kevin? Because we have that with onshore uh, turbines. So maybe it yes. will be less of a factor offshore. Um, it, it, it will be less of a factor offshore, but there will be times when the wind won't blow and... Uh, the, it's fair to say we're actually realising now the the part that solar can play in in this conversation, and particularly in the Irish context. And it's it's clear that we are undergoing a solar revolution of sorts. People are install, installing solar panels. Uh, it's clear that we can compete. You know, even if we don't have glaring sunshine every day, that that the actual daylight will generate a significant amount of energy. But the other balancing element in in that. Uh, is is the need for battery storage. So those three elements, wind, solar and battery storage, can give you a stable system. But uh, clearly battery performance is improving, but we need to invest in that element of the infrastructure as well and complement it all by a, a robust grid. Kevin, any sense of when our uh, gas prices are going to come down? Wholesale, uh, they've been coming down for some time now. Well, I'm I'm not great on the pricing side of things, but clearly the pressure is built for significant reductions in both electricity and gas. And the very interesting place to watch is the reform of the electricity market that the EU is considering at the moment because the of the imbalance that gas price 
uh, has on the rest of, of energy pricing. And I think that that scenario has to end. And uh, there's significant market reforms going to 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 happen and that will tilt the balance in favour of renewables, which can only be good in terms of price. John, final word to you. How likely is it that Ireland could become an exporter of energy into you know any European supergrid that might be formed in the future? A very good question, Kieran. I think that if we if we if we recognise that we have a huge potential here, and if we go about it the right way, um, but equally, I think we've got we've got a, a very significant um, education um, agenda that we have to fulfil also to make sure we do that. So the people uh, right throughout the country to, 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 to get over some of the issues we have at the moment, people right throughout the country must understand where we can get to and how we can get there and how it's going to impact them directly and how it might affect the price of electricity for them in the years ahead. Um, and I, I think if, if, if we do that and do that properly, and I think Engineers Ireland have a, have a very big role to play here. We're, we're a very independent, but we're a totally independent body. We have engineers all over the country um, in, our, in our regional uh, uh, sectors. And, and you know, we, can, we can do our best to communicate the ultimate benefits uh, there may be short-term sacrifices, but there will be ultimate benefits for the country that if we do, if we do utilize the resource we have to its full potential, we can certainly become uh, an exporter of, of energy in the years ahead. And I think maybe you, uh, just Kevin mentioned there a few moments ago the, the whole issue of where solar sits in the, in the equation. And, and I may be incorrect in this, but I think that there's a report this morning in the Institute of Engineering and Technology uh, uh, magazine that solar will be the biggest generator of electricity uh, by 2050. Uh, so I think that to answer your question directly, yes, we can become we can become very close to energy independent, but we've got to transition to that, and we've got to make sure that um, in the in the interim the lights don't go out, that there's, there's there's security of supply there for everybody, and in the context of that, I think you know Engineers Ireland would again be suggesting that you know we we can just drop one form of generation or one one fuel source. We've got to transition to it, and our view would be the transitioning would be with gas uh, uh, as the as the the the, the, the preferred. Uh, fossil fuel that will bring us to that in the next 30, 40 years. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Michael O'Flynn, Kevin O'Sullivan and John Power. Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.